0: You can support Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories at Patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. For five or ten bucks a month, get extra content, including weekly newsletters and tons of top five and playlist episodes and outtakes and a whole bunch of other stuff. Check us out. Patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, let's do the show. Don't go to sleep, mom. I- Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? you lose half your body sleeping. Uh, I sleep pretty hard.
1: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. And welcome, everybody, to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You know how
0: to get involved in the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Jeff writes to say, I recently came across your pod and I'm hooked. I am working my way through the back catalog, but I haven't come across an episode on Winger yet. I would, Winger, l- I would everybody. love to hear about Kip Winger and his run-ins with Beavis ButtHead and Metallica.
1: So, I knew we would get to this. <laughs> I knew that we would start to get, and now, and there's been more than one like poke around about we should do an episode about uh-huh. winger. Uh-huh. And so I have, and so the reason I've been so excited that someday we do it because I have a winger story because I saw winger Uh-oh. and I took, I took a childhood friend to his very first concert and we were going to see Cinderella and it was the, the, the long cold winter tour. And I have the date and I've actually, Brian, I put the link where you can see the flyer where it's like schools out concert or something. <laughs> and it, and it's so, uh, and, and it's, and you couldn't like, don't know what you got till it's gone. They, they had a white, you know, baby grand piano that came out of the ceiling. Oh man, this this so, was Cinderella with a budget. So that was Cinderella with a budget, and the opening act it was a three three bands. The opening act was the Bullet Boys, oh, hell and yeah. they were kind of kind of fun. But it was unbelievable that Winger were good. They were loud. They were so different than I thought that they would be, and really the thing was, it was about Red Beach. I always, mm-hmm. I guess it's, I always thought his name was like Red Box sometimes, but it was the guitar tone. And holy crap, that guy has played with everybody. Mm-hmm. And then if you're a metal guy, he played with Dokken and White Snake, and he's always always played with Winger. But he's played with like frickin' Shaka Khan and Howard Jones, yep. and he was a birthday berkeley guy and he's like smart as hell the keyboards were totally cheesy and we'll talk about that a little bit or like later about how some of the songs are just kind of there's something Mm -hmm. missing that's a little artificial you know but the guitars are great and then kip kip winger with the the thing that's not really a shirt (laughs) it's like the tank top that's barely a tank top and he's and he's he is a freaking Adonis, so hot he's so hot he still is he's like a 65 year old man he's still good looking we'll talk about in a little like a little bit a classic rocker legend who finds out he's like i heard kip winger plays bass and he's good looking and you're gonna freak out when you hear who that person is but he's an adonis and he's so good looking he's zoolander good looking he went out with rachel hunter and after they broke up it's that she married rod stewart that's who she is and my favorite song is time to surrender like all the rest kind of suck and i put the link to it uh in there for the show notes too uh like it's like a s and the best thing apart about them is he had a microphone the garth brooks microphone before <laughs> any rocker and he was really dramatic
0: that is a good point 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 number one he's he's a, a quite the personality in, in the way that he portrays the things he's passionate about. So that's fun. Also, you mentioned this, but we've had this winger episode in the idea chamber ever since we had Richard Beanstock on the show because there is, su- speaking of his quotes, there's such a great Kip interview in that book. Reb, Kip, Bo, who we're going to talk about all... I'll just spill the tea in in that book. And it's so freaking good. Nothing but a good time, of course, is that book. It's, it's a, a biblical type of text for this show. So if you, I, a true story, I got another copy of it for Christmas and someone was like, dude, do you have this already? And I was like, uh, yeah, but I ha- I'm collecting as many copies as possible and as many formats as possible, and I don't have this format. So I have a really nice hardback cover version of it now, and I used it oh, to cool. pull a lot of these quotes. So uh, we- we've been hesitant to nice. execute on this episode, though, because I wasn't right. sure if anybody else was yeah. going to be as excited as you and I were to do this episode. So we <laughs> waited. We <laughs> waited until we, we heard. Thought. Right, yeah. And-, and then I thought, when the people ask for it,
1: we will give it. And the people have spoken, and hopefully they will not be headed for a heartbreak. Oh, See come what I did there? It's come on. I, All right. So we can cut
0: to the core of this whole thing very quickly. Kip was always a bit of a, like, one of these things is not like the other guy in, in the 80s hair scene.
1: Brian, I want you to read this. It's a fast way to illustrate the larger point you made. We have this list of official write-ups for 80s hair Icons and what they referenced what their influences are. And so here's what they are. So Brett Michaels, biggest influence. Kiss, ACDC, sweet, and Aerosmith. And then once you read the rest. John Bon Jovi,
0: biggest influences, Aerosmith, Journey, Tom Kiefer from Cinderella, biggest influences, The Stones, Led Zeppelin, and Rod Stewart.
1: And for contrast, Kip Winger was 16 years old. He took a ballet class and got interested less in the dance and more in the music he was dancing to Debussy, Ravel and Stravinsky.
0: Stravinsky. Go for it. The count the count on Stravinsky on this pod is up to 3 episodes. So this is a direct quote. Kip talking here, okay? <laughs> Quote, I started taking ballet as a teenager because I had a girlfriend that didn't have any friends to do the ballet with. And so then I found I was really into it, and that sparked my interest in classical guitar, and I started doing that, and I got really into Baroque music and prog rock. Let me tell you, I quelled the instinct, which was to talk at length about what Baroque music is, but just know it's not what normally informs rock and roll.
1: No, and it ain't Baroken, just telling you. So Kip decides <laughs> so to dumb. cut a demo – To get some attention. So who does does he send it to? Not Gene Simmons. Not Gene Simmons.
0: Not Keith Richards. Who does he send it to? He sends it to motherfucking Alan Parsons.
1: (laughs) Can we talk about Alan Parsons? We've never talked about Alan Parsons on the show before. We totally should. Like, what an interesting, fascinating guy. Dude, I I was at the mall with a teenager today, and I almost bought a Slayer shirt. It took a long time for me to get to Alan Parsons. (laughs) <laughs> how would you know? Like, I'm I'm at a milestone birthday and I almost bought a South of Heaven t-shirt today. Like it took me a while in my life to get to Alan Parsons. I don't think too, like the normal average music fan really understands how serious of a dude he
0: is. Well, he's like a literal Austin Powers punchline. And, and now that I think about it, that actually gives him even more in common with Kip Winger because he is sort of this misunderstood and miscategorized creative, right? Who becomes
1: a little bit of a punching bag or at least the throwaway reference. Yeah. But in Alan Parsons cases, that dude worked on a couple of the greatest records of
0: all He's time.
1: He's literally in
0: the room for Abbey Road and
1: Dark Side of the Moon. So something there's a job title we don't hear much of in the music industry and, and, and recording now is the Tape Operator. We don't hear that. But basically yeah. in a place like Abbey Road in London, they had this this person that was filling this role in every recording session in the 60s. Oh, and they were sort of like a tech. Or at worst, they were like a glorified admin or a secretary, but they kind of did everything. So they're like a, a, you know, they they would set up the mics or they would uh-huh. go as a runner and get lunch. But they were apprenticing underneath the recording engineer was what their org chart was. And Alan Parsons gets a gig as
0: one of these guys at the age of 18. And he ends up parlaying this into a career, both in the studio and on the stage himself, of course. Eventually, he will become known for the Alan Parsons project. But when 16-year-old Kip writes him a letter in 1977, Alan is still mostly just known as an engineer and as an emerging producer. So he's not, not necessarily a headline guy. So Alan Parsons,
1: Alan Parsons <laughs> responds to Kip Winger's letter. Teenager Kip Winger of Deep Denver, Colorado. He's impressed enough that he responds, but it is actually another relationship of all things that Rip for, Kip forms at that same time. And it totally connects him to a career in music and sets him on the path that we know him as. And that guy is a relationship the guy, his name is Bo Hill. Yeah, that's so that guy. Skipping is. ahead,
0: if you know anything about 80s hair, you know Bo. Bo shapes a lot of a certain tier of hair rock in the 80s as a producer. He's also a founding partner in Interscope Records. So yeah, this dude yeah. is legit and a big deal. But he and Kip not only go way back, they also share a lot about their approach to music. I this I find this fascinating when I started digging around and I learned this little tidbit. So we talked about Kip. And him loving some Stravinsky and doing some ballet. When Bo is six years old, six years old, he studies classical music at the Texas Conservatory. We're talking about a musical
1: child prodigy. Guys, how crazy is this episode, God? Because <laughs> we went to Kip Winger and Stravinsky, and we got to Alan Parsons. We got a little kid at the Texas Conservatory. like Just What, what is that like, hard. being
0: a little kid at the Texas Conservatory, trying to learn classical shit in the 60s and 70s? It's wild. And, and
1: hell, everybody, we even got the best part. By the end of the 70s, Kip has a record deal with Columbia. Now, Bo has a record uh, deal with Columbia. Oh, it's right. It's Bo. Sorry. So Bo has the record deal with Columbia, and it's Airborne is the name of the band. And he's in Denver the same time that Kip's in Denver. And Kip is 16, and he's in a band with his brothers. Yeah. And wait for it, everybody. The name of the band is The Wingers with a Z. Hell yeah, it is. They don't
0: have a record deal yet, but... They're introduced through a manager, and Bo offers to produce the wingers. And the four of them, Bo, Kip, and Kip's brothers, Paul and Nate, they become buddies. And it, it is true that B- Paul and Nate will sing on records that Bo produces like for the rest of his career. Like He loves them. They be, They literally become close friends. This is a quote from Kip. When Bo moved from Denver to New York... I followed him. And then he would hire me on projects when he could. And this helped me immensely. And so
1: at some point, Bo, the guy who co-founded Interscope Records, is working with Alice Cooper in the mid-80s. And he mentions Kip Winger to Alice. This is the quote you were talking about. Quote,
0: I heard about Kip Winger from one of my producers, and he's talking about Bo. He said, I know this kid that plays bass and looks really good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so I'm trying to imagine like whether it's 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 Vincent like without the makeup or it's Alice. Right, right. That. It's he's in full makeup when he would. oh, good looking kid. Let's yeah. call him. Yeah, let's call him. Let's have him over for hot dogs. Um, so it's important. <laughs> I, sorry, I went there. It's important to mention where we are with. Oh my Alice god, Alice Yeah, Cooper
0: Alice. This is a whole thing. Right? Like at
1: this time period. The quickest
0: way to get us to where we are in Alice Cooper history is: Did you know that Alice Cooper himself? refers yes. to a section of his output in the early 80s as the blackout albums. And that is because yes. he does not remember making them due to the amount of cocaine he was
1: consuming. Bad scene for Alice. And he fought like he's sort of a pop culture person then too. Like he, people know him. Like, oh yeah. Insist like, like he, you know, is he see is he is now. Like he's a celebrity golfer and stuff. Like he was hanging out with like, You know, guys at the Rainbow Room. And And he falls hard. I think people forget that he falls hard. Yeah. And so if you weren't around then, you didn't know that you found out that like he just disappeared. And he did a tour for the Special Forces record in 81. And then he doesn't tour again until he meets Kip and Bo and then that crew. And Alice is a live act. Like, you know, it's like putting out records is kind of like one of those things he has secondary, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, him not being on the road is a bigger deal than most bands not being on the road.
1: Here's how Kip actually
0: puts it. Right. Quote, Alice had a bad couple of years. He was coming out of rehab. He was trying to reestablish himself after, you know, being curled in the fetal position in a hotel in Paris and addicted to heroin.
1: That is descriptive. This period, it's, it's like the early 80s to the early mid 80s is just terrible. He's hospitalized for cirrhosis, and he lives. He almost gets divorced, but that's a whole nother episode for later. And then Warner Brothers drops it. So there's a lot writing on what
0: will become of this album, which is now where we're catching up in 85, is the album he's
1: creating, and it is the album that becomes known as Constrictor. This album and the tour that follows, The Nightmare Returns. The
0: nightmare Returns!
1: yeah. They do indeed bring Alice back. And this is where you get the Nightmare on Elm Street tie in. This is a version of concert film.
0: There's a lot of people that only really know this version of Alice Cooper. You sort of know either School's Out Alice Cooper or this version of Alice Cooper. So depending on age, you may not even realize there was an earlier Alice Cooper than this. And Kip is all part of this part of Alice Cooper. But by the next tour he's already thinking about going out on his own as a solo act. So he has this one really successful tour. They do a second tour a a year, a couple years later. And then he's starting to have conversations with the guys that he's in the band with, and he's saying, I sort of want to go out and do stuff on my own. And, I mean, this is, it all comes back to the same issue that Kip has had since he was 16 and geeking out on Stravinsky. Please
1: try not to laugh. Quote, (laughs) my music was a lot more progressive as a solo act Peter Gabriel was my biggest influence
0: <laughs> so even better than that quote is the red beach quote about meeting Kip did you see this one he said <laughs> he said quote
1: kisses keep go
0: Kip had some really great stuff talking about his music although it was a little bit dot 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 it was like progressive <laughs> techno music which is the way that like a 80 year old man describes music he doesn't understand it, it was great music but it was missing something a human characteristic end quote that is a low-key wicked bird
1: yeah and i identify somewhat with what he said because there's parts of it where just the keys like I mean you can tell that he's trying to meld together different melodies on top of like me- metal. And you're talking like about even even kind of- in Wingers music. You're talking about in the band's music. Yeah, it's like I, like anything there's that something that's missing and that's what keeps me from liking it. It's the like he's overthinking it because he knows yeah. too much. This is goes back to the story I tell all
0: the time on the show which I will not tell. Go back to the old episodes, you'll find me talking about it. I've seen Tim Reynolds And just being like, this is not good or fun because the guy knows way too much about music theory. And I think there's a little bit of that going on with Winger.
1: Well, I did try that before the episode. I was, you know, we're sitting doing research and stuff and I thought, I'm going to listen, do some Winger. I'm going to do some binging, listen to Winger. And like, I I think I might have lasted uh, seven
0: or eight minutes. Oh, I, I did not so, have I did not have that trouble. I listened to most of the first record and enjoyed it immensely. But I have no real relationship with it other than academically. Like I wasn't there for the first round, and he's always been a little bit of a pop cultural side note to me. But I mean the yeah. so- the songs are they they sound very generic. You don't hear it and be like, oh, this is distinctive and interesting. It just sounds like a certain period
1: of music history, which is part of what we're getting to. Right, right. So, Bo Hill understands Kip and saves him from himself and introduces him to Reb Beach. And eventually, it's Kip and Reb and Alice's key, Alice uh, Cooper's keyboard player on that tour. whose name's Paul Taylor. That's the band that Kip Winger was in previously, the Wingers. Kip is now in the band called Winger.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> getting to that name is funny, too. But the, the letter from Jeff mentions run-ins, quote unquote run-ins with Metallica and Beavis and Butthead, which we will discuss. But we need to distill what those run-ins are about. And I think if we're gonna summarize that, it's about respect
1: or lack thereof.
0: Would you agree with that?
1: Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. It's it's about that.
0: Kip Winger I, becomes I mean, a really.
1: punching bag.
0: And and that begs the question, which I think we're already sort of getting there. But but why? Why would others think that kip is a punching bag why would others in the scene roll their eyes at kip winger and there is a quote that i think sort of takes care of all of this for us you you mentioned quotes you're gonna laugh through it it answers this pretty succinctly read that quote about tesla and megadeth
1: quote with alice we had bands like tesla and megadeth opening for us and i was thinking fuck I could do this with two hands tied behind my back. Ugh. I've been writing like Peter Gabriel music on my own stuff. That was <laughs> such more, so much more complicated, but now I sing bands and I was like, wait a minute. You mean I could do the stuff I did when I was 16 and get a record deal. I mean, it's a pretty pretentious thing to verbalize.
0: It's one of those Woo. things that you would like say at band practice, but not say in public.
1: I was around during this time. And I remember like, there was just this general thing that like, he was kind of a douche and they don't get signed immediately. Uh,
0: this is yeah. like my favorite rock and roll story ever.
1: This is why. Yes, this is why so I good. wanted to do this episode for
0: so long, and we were sort of waiting <laughs> because this story is so good. So, so
1: kick us off. Bo is going for it, and you know, it's like Bo is clearly connected. If he fa- co-founded Interscope, so he's pitching. He's pitching the band to Doug Morris at Atlantic Records and Doug's a pretty heavy hitter at the label even then, and Doug's not going for it. At
0: but all. but here's the trick. Bo, I mean he is purely in the winger corner. he wants us to work. These are his boys, these are his buddies. And so when Doug rejects a demo, go Bo will go back to Kip and the band and he will say write something else. and then he goes back to Doug. And he just tells him it's a different band.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Straight up makes up band names. Sahara, call your doctor. And, and each, each, one of the, each one of the bands keeps getting rejected. So
0: finally, after doing this four or five times over the course of a year, he takes Doug a demo of State of Emergency. And that song still rips. I stand by it. And Doug Morris, Doug Morris wants in.
1: Okay. I have to read this. All right, everybody. So this is Bo Hill talking, right? This is a quote from him. I asked Doug, will you sign it? And he said, yes, I'll sign it. I walked around his desk, stuck out my hand. and I said, we have a deal. And he said, yes. And as I was walking out, as I was walking out of the office, he said, wait, who did I decide? And I said, you just signed Kip Winger. And he goes, you fucking prick. And he <laughs> threw him out of the office. <laughs> and 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 winger winger got a record deal that is that way
0: that is amazing stuff absolutely amazing stuff
1: yeah yeah so for what it's worth Bo is right winger sells a bunch of records they get a record deal with Atlantic like they're label mates with the Rolling Stones and Aretha Franklin you know but a key component for this band obviously is MTV. that The record comes out in August of 88, um, but it takes until February of the next year where it starts to happen and the band gets a video budget from Atlantic. And Madeline is the, gets some, like, it's still, people still like that song. It got some rotation at the beginning, but the video and song that broke the record, of course, is unfortunately, I'm just saying, is seventeen. Uh, problematic at best that
0: one and of course comes from a long line of, sort of. In- inappropriate rock songs I- in fact that was actually how kip liked to justify that song years later when people would bring it up and be like yeah, this is not an okay thing you're singing about uh he would just basically say like i was inspired by Sar standing there by the beatles that was his justification
1: yeah it's it's actually just like an abomination it's it, it has to be an embarrassment for me i'm sure he probably still plays it he still it, plays terrible.
0: it i know they still play it
1: yeah for sure yeah, um yeah, he doesn't have any daughters. He should ha- that should happen to him. Anyway, uh, just saying, lyrically it is the Beatles, but musically they were openly trying to rip off Led Zeppelin, you know. And and it is all based on a riff that Reb says he wrote when he was not 17, but 15, and Kip helped him help top, you know figure him out how to incorporate it into everything.
0: Which brings us to yet another pretentious quote. Now, again, you you set up up top that there are things that Kip has said throughout time that have done him no favors, and this is one of them. This is a 2014 interview. Quote, The thing I like about Seventeen is that time and time again, I've seen cover bands try to play it, and there's no one I've ever seen be able to play that riff correctly. (laughs) I just love the idea of Kip hanging out in the back of a bar and like... Santa Cruz, and just watching some weekend warrior guy just like miss a note and like
1: laughing. He's like, that butthole up there is in the wrong key. <laughs> in 2012, this is an important thing to think about Kip, who clearly has handled all this very well. Spin ranked a list of the 30 biggest punching bags in pop history. What a great list. And I'd like to applaud the terrible human being that came up with that list. To- <laughs> humiliate 30 fricking people (laughs) winger winger came in in the middle they were 16 but there is a great quote as i've mentioned there would be at the top and there is in the write-up where kip says that when the record took off they realized i've got to keep it together before i read this they'd be touring and making public appearances and they didn't know how they should dress so they pulled out a photo of white snake and dressed like that here's the quote into the quote when you're like inside the quote when you're a kid You want to dress up like that. You want to lose yourself in fantasy land. And ironically, Red Beach will later become the longest running member of
0: White Snake other than David Coverdale when he joins in 2002. He's technically, I think, still in that
1: band. But yes, the the wardrobe doesn't age well. You know, it's ironic because MTV is what makes this band happen. But often on the show, we find ourselves talking about how MTV changed things for the positive. But... There's the obvious case, if you guys know and you listen to episode 134 about Billy Squire, everybody wants you with oh, um, yeah. MTV did it disservice with him with a great song that the video was terrible and it sank him. Yeah, but in the case of Billy Squire, that was a misfire on his part.
0: Right. His camp came up with a video and then MTV played it. And so, yes, it was like they they misused the power of MTV by accident. Right. But with Winger, MTV arguably is their rise and it's their downfall. But for their downfall, it's not their videos or their output that cause an image
1: issue. It's somebody else. I've had to come to grips the fact that I'm really a Big Metallica fan. What do you
0: mean? Come to Always. grips. Did I have to tell you? Do we need to have a sit down? Is there like an interview? Of course, you're a big fucking Metallica fan. If I was going to describe you, and people were like, well, "What <laughs> kind of music does he like?" Metallica would be in the top five bands I would mention. Super it, drag,
1: blah 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 blah, and Metallica. That's how that Metallica. conversation would go. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's so true too. But I remember. Hearing or seeing Inner Sam, like I was a super duper fan of Metallica. So I heard them playing that song. I think they did it like a Freddie Mercury concert. Like they opened with it and nailed it. And but like I, I think I saw them play it before it was like actually out. Um and I knew that it was gonna be enormous. Like there was no doubt, and then the video did nothing for me. It just seemed to be like just ridiculous. Um but the song, like, I don't mind the Black Album. I know a lot of people shit on over it. But I think those 90% of the songs are solid on that record. But they broke, like, really big worldwide with videos at that point with that record. And Bob Rock really helped them, you know, crash oh, sure. songs yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in a different way. But, but I want you to think about this. Like, they were, they were, they were a real big band in Europe and i saw them in 88 here in the united states in a sold out shed that had 18,000 people so they were big in the late 80s well, like even before like 3 or 4 years before inner sandman too but the video like it it sent them into in the, the outer stratosphere limits. oh
0: yeah and and yeah. As, this is what's so interesting to me that i don't think gets talked about enough when we talk about bands like winger who do not make it past the the early nineties because of the direction of pop culture and music. As much as the death of hair metal is colloquially attributed to grunge, the black album does a whole lot to redefine what a hard rock album can be and what it can sound like during this period. This is a different type of mainstream hard rock band. And when the video for nothing else matters drops on February 26th of 1992, there's a couple of things that make it really unique for the moment. It's It's made up of clips from this doc. You've seen this doc, right? A year and a half in the life of Metallica? Sure, of course. Do you know who who made that doc? That doc was made by Adam Dubin. Adam Dubin lived with a guy in the 80s named Rick Rubin. No relation. Their names just rhyme. Just rhyme. uh, His biggest claim to fame, Adam Dubin's biggest claim to fame, up to this point, before he does work with Metallica, shoots this doc... He he mostly worked with one other band, and if you know Rick Rubin's history, you might know his buddy Rick Rubin apparently probably hooked him up with this. He does two videos for the Beastie Boys. He does the video for (laughs) No Sleep Till Brooklyn, and he does the video for Fight for Your Right. So to give you some perspective, MTV once named Fight for Your Right as the number three funniest video of all time. So you have a guy on the Nothing Else Matters video, which is made up of clips from this documentary, the guy that made both of those things, he his CV is comedy, right? So you've hired a comedy director to do this video for this very serious band that's making this gigantic leap into a new decade.
1: Yeah. And not only that, this is a band that had, you know, there was a fight fire with fire whiplash band and like nothing else matters was the stepping out like way off the cliff for James to sing a song. Rather than bark a song, so the song was a completely slow. Like it is really slow. slow
0: like I forgot how slow it is. Also, it's six it's, minutes long in that fucking yeah, it's, video. It's the first video to garner over a billion plays for that band on YouTube, and mm-hmm. it, it's six minutes. Like it's so yeah. damn long.
1: So that guy that made the freaking Beastie Boy videos has to make a video for this song. So of course. He's awesome, and he's sure to capture the shot where Lars is throwing darts, and it's revealed that the target on the dartboard is Kip Wigger.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So Lars eventually explains the shot this way in a Howard Stern interview. Quote, in the Nothing Else Matters video, which was filmed at the studio where we were recording the Black Album, we had a dartboard. We'd get cream, circus, and we'd take posters of people who look particularly obnoxious and put them on the board and throw darts at them.
0: Now, the second thing I was going to mention about this video is that initially MTV will not play this video during the day because you can see nude pinup posters in the video because it's part yeah. of the stock, right? They're yeah. they're decorating the studio in several shots. So it's just another thing that gives this video some mystique but and a reason for people to talk about it. But also, there is this direct juxtaposition of disrespect happening where you are equating kip essentially to a female pinup making him a a quote-unquote pretty boy and not a serious rock musician now this is all fucked up and backwards right like this is not how we think about women and pop culture and all these things now but but looking in the rear view 30 years ago very clearly it's hard to miss that
1: in retrospect yeah so this is bullet number one via mtv but within that next year so bullet number two comes via programming on that network as well were you
0: were you a liquid television guy
1: oh yeah <laughs> uh, that's college that's college with me living with a I live with like three other guys, and like that's a place not only everyone left, and I was like the, the guy like got st- i was stuck there with everything and then, uh I lost the damage deposit and then they wanted <laughs> six hundred dollars for the stove. <laughs> What'd you do to the stove? Yeah, there's more than one occasion where you put cookies in there and forget to take them out and turn <laughs> off the oven. Like crap like that, you never cleaned it. <laughs> we had tapes of liquid television. Yeah, oh, really? I watched tons of that stuff. But yeah, so we need to explain. It's obtuse. Like, explain what liquid television is. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. If so we li- don't know what that is. Liquid television, of course.
0: Animated showcase on MTV in the early 90s, and it would feature these animated shorts that were submitted from animators from all over. Right, and in 1992, this 30-year-old fledgling musician/slash aspiring animator who had just had a little success getting a short he made picked up by Comedy Central submits something called Frog Baseball, and this short features a couple
1: of characters who are dumb, rude, awful teenage boys. And MTV is so impressed with Frog Baseball, orders a full series from Mike Judge. Mike and Judge. That Beavis, Beavis and Butthead. And that runs for seven seasons. It redefines both the network and lots of things about pop culture. Remember, the laundromat is right there on Bartstown Road and Grinstead. It's not there anymore. Oh, yeah. Like uh-huh. Washarama or uh-huh. something. Yeah. There was the, this girl in there. This, she had like green hair or something. And she was the person I talked to. I I took my laundry there. And I don't know how we ever got there, man, Brian, but like at some point we had an exchange scenario where I brought in DV, like DVDs or DV, DVR or whatever, like recordable DVDs. Yeah. And she put the entire Beavis and Butthead, like all episodes <laughs> on, on all these DVDs. And she gave me Battlestar Galactica too, like the new one. Nice. Um, yeah. And so I watched. Uh, Oh, and King of the Hill. So I got the other Mike Judge thing. So anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, the
0: show takes shots at lots of music during its almost decade, right? It's how the show is designed in part. But the shot it takes at Winger is more specific because there's a whole character for that punchline. And that character, of course, is named
1: Stuart Stevens. (laughs) I'm trying not to spit out my water (laughs) before we start (laughs) talking about (laughs) Stu. Um, The Beavis and Butthead uh, fandom wiki says Stuart Stevenson is a recurring character in Beavis and Butthead. He is a nerdy, wimpy and obese teen lacking in self-esteem who lives near the boys. He often tries to hang out with Beavis and Butthead, thinking himself to be their best friend, but they always end up bullying him or brutally taking advantage of him which is a crazy thing to put in print, which is true. (laughs) He's also, I love this fact and true. He's also associated with a conservative Christian youth group called positive acting teens.
0: Now, now read the physical description.
1: Uh, Stuart is significantly shorter than the duo. With shoulder-length blonde hair, a black winger t-shirt, blue shorts, white socks, black shoes, much like what the duo wear. He's also slack-jawed, and as his buck teeth are shown. <laughs> Most of the time. Now the question becomes: Why Winger? How why did they? Winger? How did they make the
0: shirt have Winger's logo on it? Of all the bands that it could have been, right? So there's two versions of this story floating around. One is that Mike Judge had heard that Kip had told someone at MTV not to let them make fun of Winger, and of course, that's a challenge. You don't. You don't let that. And and hearing some of the things that Winger said over history, I, I do. I think that's maybe true. I don't know. Right? I, I don't think there was an official proclamation. Did he say it to somebody who knew somebody who knew Mike Judge? I, maybe. Who knows? But the other is that they actually tried several names on the shirt, and when they were developing the idea, it was just like Winger that sort of stuck in the, in the animation reels, and they, they left it in there.
1: Yeah, and if that is the case, then there is an argument to be made that Metallica striking first with the dartboard sealed the deal because, of course, uh-huh. yeah. Beavis is always wearing the Metallica shirt, so there's the direct opposite correlation between the two characters.
0: Now, Kip, Kip thinks this is 100% the case. He is on the record. This is a quote. Apparently, they tried a few different names on the Stewart shirt. Mine was the one that stuck. It could have been poison. I don't know. It could have been anybody, but mine stuck, and I think it's because Metallica threw the darts at my
1: poster. I think those two things go hand in hand. <laughs> he must be a really upbeat guy even though he has that really <laughs> gross song because he's like, "Oh, I think it's because Metallica threw the darts at his poster." Like some people would just be destroyed by the whole thing. Yeah. But can we really blame all of this on Beavis and Butthead? Well, for it real? it does remind me of the Billy Squire story,
0: right? Billy will say that he saw his ticket sales evaporate almost overnight after his video disgrace. Red Beach will make similar claims over the years about Winger, but there's a lot happening pop-culturally around this time, and frankly, Winger was a little bit late to the game in terms of when they got on the scene playing this style of music.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so an older and wiser Kippa speculated on this and had various uh, things to say like this, quote, There was a turning point in my band where I made a fatal mistake, which was my second album. We were misrepresented on that record, two things. I should have waited to put that record out. And I should have done an album cover of us in blue jeans. That's what I should have done. And then the music would have spoken louder than the image. He's talking about... that's a freaking Kip Winger quote, everybody. That's another th- <laughs> weird thing he said. That's well, the reason they throw darts at him.
0: But, but how wrong is he? Like, what other era has been defined so much? Music era has been defined so negatively in retrospect by the fashion. Like, there's definitely other eras that have been defined by fashion. I mean, grunge is to a certain extent. I mean, mod is. But, like, it, it, the, none of it gets lampooned like. This period of the 80s, and it's because of the extreme, I guess. But anyway, he's talking about in the heart of the young uh, or what is popularly known as Winger 2. This is a classic what if scenario, right? If a few elements relating to that period of the band were different, would they have been perceived differently? Would have they had a different outcome? You can't play that game and stay sane. But I do think his larger point is really that these sorts of things are sort of about everything and nothing all at once, right? Like, was he just a victim of a dumb joke that stuck or
1: did everything he did leading up to
0: this point, allow that dumb joke to stick in the first place. And that's sort of an interesting question.
1: So, you know, let's, let's just talk about, you know, what really happened. So with winger, they fizzled out by 94 and in 97 Kip's wife was killed in the car wreck. And he decides at that point to take a, a step back and he decides to go back to um when he was 16 he goes to college and he studies orchestral music and at 45 he debuted his first symphony and eventually he gets nominated for a freaking grammy everybody Damn. for classical contemporary composition and he's currently writing a violin concerto for the Nashville Symphony that is supposed to premiere here in 2024 this year.
0: And as far as his relationship to Metallica and Beavis and Butthead, he he is reconciled with both parties. Like, Lars has talked about an apology of sorts in interviews, but James Hetfield supposedly actually called Kip a few years back, and Kip says that they've stayed friendly since. And As for Mike Judge, apparently when they brought Beavis and Butthead back, he, he went and asked permission to use the logo this time, which Kip points out, and I've only heard this from Kip's perspective, kip says they did not ask the first time uh and so he ended up emailing with kip and eventually paying for the rights to use the winger name and logo in the show the second time so kip is getting paid a little bit at
1: least for his misery now and that's really funny really and case okay, so they still play and they're are they coming they're coming to our town right Dude, this summer this are we going it's it's
0: it's sort of a killer lineup and i th- Sort of think we need to do it. It's like an outdoor show like outside of the metro area, but like this could be an official rock and roll bedtime stories event. One more one more note I wanted to make about this yeah. to sort of bring this yeah. full circle. So we started very early in the episode talking about our boy Alan Parsons. And I I don't know if you know this little thing, but years later, like not that long ago, uh Alan Parsons has a like a touring project that he still does and he gets different singers alan parsons is not a singer he brought kip winger in as the singer of that project a few years ago and when kip accepted he brought the letter and showed alan parsons the letter and said you set me on this path and i would be honored to be a part of this now oh my gosh how cute is that beautiful sort of ending to that story and yeah kip is still out there doing it man
1: um well hey i want to thank jeff for making it real so i could talk about seeing uh winger uh with the (laughs) bullet boys and cinderella (laughs) and taking my buddy to his first concert flipping him to flip out man freaking out um it was awesome it really is what
0: we live for like i i I know you think we are so above this, but it's like, oh, we get to talk about Winger this week. That's it. That's the highlight. So we uh, we do appreciate it. Remember, you can get involved in the show in a lot of different ways. Uh, you can support us uh, at patreon.com. We'd love it if you do that. Throw us a few bucks and you'll get extra bonus content, um, extra episodes, newsletters, etc. cetera. Um, you can also hang out with it. That's patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, get involved there. And the website is wearethestoryguys.com. And in until next time, Murdoch. What should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at we are the story
1: Copyright boy have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.